welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. Our guest today is the music executive, Binta Brown. Binta, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I'm glad we can do this. And I've been following you and really interested in your background because before you enter the music industry, became an exec in this industry, you were already successful as an attorney, working in entertainment, working in different fields, and then you made the pivot over to music. What was it about this field that attracted you to the music industry? I still haven't learned to provide a succinct answer, so I'll just provide the most honest answer I can. I grew up as a musician and loving music and was really blessed to have parents who indulged me in my love of music. You know, I learned to play multiple instruments as a young kid, continued playing them throughout high school and college. I was at conservatory for a semester, Manhattan School of Music, double enrolled at Barnard College. Music is my first language and it's my last language. And so I always knew that music was going to be part of my career. And if anything, the time that I spent as a corporate lawyer, in some cases, was a detour, although a well-intentioned detour. And what I mean by that is that as I was coming up and I was looking at, you know, I've always had this desire to be a music executive. And it's because I love music. I love playing it. It's because it's, it's my first language. There are philosophical reasons for my love of music and my desire to be in this crazy, unwieldy industry that we're in. And I'll get into those in a second. But when I was looking at the careers of music executives whom I really admired, Clive Davis, for example, so many of those folks, they all started as lawyers and not necessarily music music lawyers, corporate lawyers, sometimes litigators. And so as I asked people and I looked around, another person whom I really admire so, so much, Sylvia Rohn, she started her career on Wall Street and with a very similar pedigree, actually, to mine. And so as I was looking around and thinking about, okay, how do I end up eventually having a career like those folks, with the exception of Sylvia, but Clive Davis and many, many others, all lawyers, all came up through that system. And so it made sense to me when I was still trying to figure things out as, I guess, a 19-year-old who was applying to law school, it made sense to me to pursue a legal career and to pursue a law degree. And the people whom I spoke to would say to me, well, you know, the law is really essential in the music business because one part of an album is the creative and the other part of the album is the bundle of rights. And as most folks who understand corporations know, all a corporation really is, is a bundle of rights and contracts. And so to have expertise in that area, I thought was going to be critically important. And so to me, it was part of the plan But where I maybe got a little bit off is that I found success I didn't necessarily expect to have as a young corporate lawyer. And I had the opportunity to get involved with politics, to get involved with various philanthropic organizations as a young junior philanthropist, I think that's what they used to call us. And you start to get a little bit distracted from what your intention, what your vision is. But it seems to have worked out okay for me. And what I mean by that is that I guess it was probably about eight years ago, nine years ago, I was doing a lot of gigs as a bass player in cover bands in New York. And my parents would come up to those gigs when they could. And after one of them, one of them was particularly interesting. 
think it was the first time my dad ever saw me drink before going to work. And that's in quotes. Whenever I performed, I would always have like two sips of tequila just to calm my nerves, sipping tequila. And then I went out, you know, I came out on stage and, you know, like he's seeing his somewhat, a lot of people I think have seen me as being buttoned up, but that's what I had to be to be successful in a corporate law environment. Seeing his, you know, his corporate law daughter, you know, come out on stage to perform in a club in New York and like, it was a great performance. It was amazing. And after a couple of those performances, one was on acoustic guitar, one was on electric bass. After a couple of those performances, my dad just pulled me aside and he said, what are you doing? And a lot of people would think that that what are you doing was about to be a lecture on you're a partner in a global law firm. You are set. You know, you have multiple obligations that come from that. Why are you distracting yourself with this music thing that you're doing? But that wasn't what my father was saying at all. It was, what are you doing? You are a music person. This has always been what you wanted to do. You've always wanted to work in music, media, and entertainment. You've always wanted to be an executive in this space. I see that you're very successful as a corporate lawyer. It doesn't matter because is it success if you're just earning a large paycheck and everybody keeps saying that you're successful? Success is the ability to direct your career and to choose the work that you want to do. It's also liberty and it's also freedom. He said, I raised you and my other children, my brother and my sister, older brother, younger sister. He's like, I raised you to be free and to have choices. We sacrificed so that you could do the work that you wanted to do. And it's clear that your passion and your intellect line up with a career in music, media and entertainment. He said, look, you might fail. He said, you probably will. Most people do in life. And he said, you might lose everything. You might lose every dollar in your savings account. You might lose everything. He said, but your mother and I are going to be here for you. We're going to support you. And we believe in you. We know that you can do this. And so for a Southern Black conservative Catholic father to say to his daughter, who's, you know, ascended to, you know, the heights of the legal profession, at a relatively young age and is known and well-regarded for the work that she's done to say, you don't have to do this. Like go do the crazy thing. That's an unusual amount of support. And so I really considered it. And the truth is that he was right. You know, he knew that I had interviewed for a bunch of media companies, but that there was always one thing or two things that didn't feel right to me. And my father also knew that whenever he visited me in my office in New York or my home, all of my books were about music, media, entertainment, about the executives who started and run these companies, about the artists, about the culture, about the lore, about the deals, the deal making. Young associates would come into my office and they would think that I was a music lawyer because in addition to all of my they're like Bibles that, you know, of all of our deals, like these beautiful leather bound, they're technically called closing sets, but, you know, we would have them leather bound and like have our names fancily embossed on them according with the deal and the logos with the corporates. So I would have those, you know, because I was very proud of that work, but then I would have only books about the music industry, you know, whether it was Donald, like literally every edition of Donald Passman's book or, you know, any of the other books that have been written about the music business. And that's all I had. So like young associates, they would come in and they would think, oh, okay, I might be able to do music law here, which was not true because that wasn't an opportunity. So I ended up 
you know, on this journey with the encouragement of my father. He's since passed away. He had the best advice was giving me the freedom to be who I am and to pursue something and to let me know that no matter what, my mother and father would always be there for me. And they have been because, as you know, this isn't an easy journey and you do make mistakes and you do have to learn, you know, people in the music business are not the same as people on Wall Street at all. (laughs) Uh, You know, there are different sets of motivating factors. There are extremely different sets of motivating factors than they're on Wall Street. Wall Street is very, very transparent. People are there really for one reason, which is to make as much money for their companies and by themselves as they possibly can. And yeah, some will put a corporate gloss on that about social good and all of that. But the practical reality is that results are measured in revenues on Wall Street. And if you're generating revenues, if you're rainmaking, if you're doing all of these different things, if you're generating the billables, then you're going to continue to progress. In the music business, it's about more than just making money, which is something that I've learned and has been really interesting to me. I sometimes wish people would focus a little bit more on the bottom line, only because it would orient some of our deals and our deals would be even more fair. But yeah, it's just been a wild and crazy journey. And, you know, I have both my parents to thank for it. But I would say especially my father, who very specifically pulled me aside and said, you know, you can do this and I believe in you. And I think he was so proud that I got to come and work in this business. And so really grateful to him. That's powerful, especially to have parents that are backing you from that perspective. Because like you mentioned, so often it's our parents that are much more risk averse that want us to take the more traditional paths as opposed to following the thing that you clearly have shown as your passion throughout your whole life up to this point. So that's great. You mentioned one thing that I agree with that I want to talk a bit more about, which is the music industry isn't always as focused on the making money aspects compared to other industries. Why do you think that is? Because I think that I want to be very clear. This is not a judgment on anybody, but it is a reality. And we need to figure out how that reality works for the model. So some of us come to music just because we love music with all of our heart, you know, and it's about the art. Like we forget that it is really difficult to continue to pursue the art if we're not also building a business at the same time. Because the United States is not like some other countries where new artists can get government grants and government support in order to get started. This is a strictly capitalist model. It's a very commercial model. And so it's very difficult to separate the reality of it being a business from the art. Otherwise, it would just be music. It wouldn't be the music business, right? It would be just music. It wouldn't be the music industry. So there's a reason why those other two words are there. So there's some people where it's just about, I'm an artist. I love art. I make art. I want to be an artist helper. I want to help facilitate making great art. That's great. And that's wonderful. And that is necessary as a first step. But there's something else that attracts people to the music business, which is it's cool, you know, As a young person, and even as an older person, you get to be around your idols and your heroes. Like there's something that's really extraordinary about sitting in a room or in a recording studio with an exponentially talented human being. It's a rush, you know, like to be part of that creative process 
and to be witness, to bear witness to that creative process for those of us who are on the executive side. You know, I do think of myself as being an artist too, but that's not primarily been what I've been doing for the last several years. To bear witness to that is extraordinary. So that's an attraction for some people. There's the cool factor. And especially in this age of social media, you know, about three years ago, I decided as a personal policy that I wouldn't necessarily put up pictures of myself with the most famous people with whom I work or have worked. If they put it up and I'm reposting, that's fine. But I just decided that it was something that I didn't want to do in part because you end up with so many different people who get the wrong idea about what it is to be an artist manager and what it is to be a music executive. Like these are real jobs and real careers and it isn't just about the party. And what I convey to young people who look up to me or people who are new to the business who look up to me, I wanna really convey to them the seriousness and the purpose behind what we do. In addition to the fun part, obviously, you know, we know very famous, <laughs> you know, artists, like that's clear but I don't need to like make that the main thing. I want the work to be the main thing. So there's a cool factor and that attracts a lot of people. And, you know, sometimes I think that for some of us, there is this king making thing or the queen making thing, which is not the same thing as making a lot of money or building a strong, well-run business, but to be the person behind the scenes who is responsible who brought so-and-so into the world or made so-and-so known. You know, I think that that is a really powerful motivation for some people. And yeah, like you need to be able to put numbers up on the board, but the reality is, is that there are all of these different non-business reasons that people come to this. And again, like I said, I'm not judging it. Trust me, I love being in a recording studio and watching Genius at Work. You know, I love being inspired by some of the people with whom I get to work. When I get off the phone with various artists, I call my mom sometimes. I'm like, man, I can't believe that I get to work with this person. Like, he's so brilliant. Like, this is what he just said. And then we have a whole conversation, you know, about like how it's affecting me. Like, I'm not judging anybody for that because, you know, this is human. But the music business is, we're purveyors of culture. And so I think that a lot of us, are more attracted to that part of it. And then we have to hurry up and catch up on the business part of it. And the attraction to culture, it has some pitfalls potentially, which is that sometimes it can create blind spots in how you negotiate and are navigating things. Now, I want to be very careful because there are some very sensitive folks or suspicious folks who would say, are you inadvertently blaming, you know, people for bad deal structures? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not at all. I actually think that responsibility for bad deal structures lies with the people who promulgate bad deal structures. But our awareness of what's happening around us is sometimes inhibited or clouded by the passion, the desire, the culture, the cool. You know, like there's such a hunger to be in it. And I say this because I've made this mistake a couple of times where, you know, I've looked at something and I thought that something was what it was. And I was so excited to be part of it and so excited to get in that space that there were questions. And it's funny because on the handful of times in which this has happened, my gut has said to me, take three steps back and start asking a lot more questions. 
And I didn't do it because I was like, wow, I'm going to get to do this. I'm going to get to be part of this. And like you develop blind spots, you miss things. And so something that I've learned in this business in particular is that the skills that I learned as a corporate lawyer, as a business person, a startup advisor are necessary and critical skills for what I do here, which is that I have to step back. I have to answer certain questions. I have to make sure that I'm separating out all of my different motivations and that I really understand the picture of what's going on because, you know, it's the blind spots in this business, they come up and they bite you and they can bite you pretty hard because it's emotional when it happens. It's not just the practical element. I don't know anybody in our business who isn't putting their heart into this at the same time. And so everything feels personal. That's the other thing that's really different is that everything in the music business feels personal. Whereas when I was practicing corporate law, none of it felt personal. I personally cared very much to do a great job for my clients and for my colleagues and to do great deals and to bring morals and ethics into everything that I did, a certain set of values into everything I did. But at the end of the day, I was always able to separate myself out from it. It was like, well, okay, that's work. The music business, because it is so part of our souls, every disappointment in the music business can feel very, very deeply personal. And you see that in the way we interact with one another when things start to go south. And you also see it in the responses and the way we respond to things in the media and otherwise. There tends to be a kind of emotional aspect of it. And sometimes if you don't bring that emotional aspect of it, people think, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, wow, you're kind of cold. You know, so there's a juggling act there, but I digress. <laughs> I think that's true because and I think this is where music even differs from other forms of media and entertainment because that cool factor in the association of having the connection to, let's say, a Beyonce or whoever it is, that can overpower the need to have that same rigor. And if you look at what's happening in the film industry, I think that a lot of that same passion and cool factor may still be there, but the wow factor of being close to like a Denzel Washington or working with Angela Bassett, someone like that, doesn't overpower the shrewdness of the decisions that need to get made. So I think that's one of the decisions there with music specifically relative to other forms of entertainment that may touch us. Let me just fine line something that's been an observation of mine since I've been in this business, which is that... More so in the music business than I would say, definitely media and definitely advertising, which is a form of media and entertainment. I'm not as sure about film or television, but I think that it applies with film and television too. In the music business, somebody can give the appearance of being extraordinarily successful financially, and you don't question whether or not there's a good, solid business underneath that's at the foundation of that success. What you see is you see the lifestyle, you see people on covers, and I'm not talking about necessarily artists. I'm talking about managers and executives too. And sometimes you can look at people and you can think, wow, that person must just be rolling in cash. And if they're rolling in cash, it must be because they have a very, very successful business underneath. But it's not always what it appears to be. And very often it's not. You know, like here's another example. Somebody might say, you know, the fundamentals of our business are sound, and I can prove that in part to you because we have five charting artists today. We have five charting artists in a streaming era. Let's discuss that 
that from a rights holder perspective. What does that actually really mean? Does that really mean that your fundamentals are good? Think about how much we're spending in certain places, you know, on marketing and otherwise. The allocation of resources and risk. Again, I'm not talking about artists. I'm talking about those of us who are managers and business executives. Somebody will say, well, we need to spend this and this and this on this because we need to give the appearance of this so that we can bring people along. So social media, not a moneymaker unless you're a Kardashian. You know, I don't think that anybody else is necessarily making money in the same way that they do on the platform because of the congestion that's there now. Streaming, not a moneymaker. You know, live used to be, <laughs> not currently, a moneymaker. And so there's all of these things that give the appearance to success. People who are giving folks stuff so that they can show up and they can wear them. and they can put, But it doesn't mean that the fundamentals are strong. And it's really, really hard to build a great business without the fundamentals being strong. And sometimes the looking at the appearances part of it causes us to miss the fundamental inequities in contracting and negotiating. And that is part of having strong fundamentals for your business, right? You know, I know one of the things that you want to get into is like, what do I hope for the music business going forward? I hope that we can keep our cool and we can keep our fun and we can keep our passion and that we can keep our hustle. Those things are critically important, but I also want more of us to really focus on building strong businesses with strong business fundamentals. Because when you do that, you have a down year like we all did this past year. It's not just the superstars who are benefiting. It's the people who are building strong businesses who are able to get through an entire year. It's the people and teams who were spending every single dollar, were spending dollars and, and particularly in some ways, like without a lot of foresight, might be a really, really well-known person and I guarantee you they've been talking to their business manager or to their label or about to this person or that person about how they can extract value out of something so that they could make it through this year where they weren't able to tour. I've heard that story from so many different people, but the folks who were really building strong businesses and it wasn't about the short term. So the one thing that I would say that is really consistent in the music business with Wall Street is that the music business, like Wall Street, still suffers from short-termism. The like, okay, this is what I need to do today, as opposed to really playing that game of chess and thinking down the road, you know, about risk management. What are all the different plays that might be made and how am I going to respond and react to those plays and really, really planning far ahead. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of short-term, like, cool, we got this. But as you and I both know, the artists who end up becoming the biggest artists, short-term, it's never a short-term plan. But these are things that happen over four to six, eight, sometimes 10 years. And it can't be about what I'm going to get today or what things look like today. It has to be about where am I headed? Where am I going? How do I plan this and build this properly? As with any good business. Yeah, the fundamentals have to be there. There can be so much smoke and mirrors to get through to be like, okay, yes, you have these vanity metrics that look very great, but what does that actually mean? And I think we've realized that sometimes it's the exact opposite where the artists who may not have those vanity metrics are the ones that have the fundamentals in place and vice versa. If you're showing more of those things, those may not necessarily be reflective of what's actually happening under the surface. 
a lot of this, I'm sure, impacts how you went about your own businesses as well. You've launched Omalili Projects, which is focusing on artist management and production. And I'm sure it's so many of those fundamentals and the difference between how a lot of the industry is operating versus how you see things. Some of that is coming to light. What do you hope to achieve with that? And how has that been going? Well, I mean, that gets back into one of the other reasons behind why I've always been attracted to working in music, media, and entertainment. And I think it's particularly relevant given what we've experienced as a country over the course of the last four years, and specifically what we all experienced this past Wednesday with the insurrection of the Capitol. You know, as purveyors of culture, what we do, what we say, what we promulgate, what we promote, the ideas that we put into society, it matters. I have said in the past, and I still firmly believe this, that music and entertainment affect how we think about ourselves and it affects how we think about one another. And those things also affect whether or not a society writ large can make progress and whether it can make progress that fundamentally respects the human dignity and rights of every single person in society. It really, really matters who the executives at the music companies, the film companies, television companies, media companies, advertising companies, sports. It really matters who's in the C-suites. It really matters who's green lighting and making decisions. It really matters in terms of how we market what ideas we're putting out into the world. Because our influence over people and our influence over how people think is massive. And it's something that we can't take for granted. So part of the reason why I wanted to be involved and I felt like I needed to do this is because as somebody who is equally motivated by human rights and justice, who is equally motivated by the pursuit of civil liberties, I see music and film and television, the arts and the humanities as being the flip side of the law. Not the flip side, but the other side of the coin, which is to say that the law has the ability to compel us to come together. Music, film, through the stories that we tell, it brings us together by showing us and revealing us to one another. And so I started Oma Lily Projects and it's named for my maternal and my paternal grandmothers, for each of my grandmothers. Oma Dell and Lillian. I started Oma Lily for two reasons. The other advice my father gave me, because I was entering the music business when it was in a free fall and before it had started generating real revenue again or profitability of any kind. And my dad said, he's like, you're going to have to strike out on your own because you want the business to be better and to be fairer. And when an industry is in free fall, the way the music business was at the time, and indisputably so. Everybody's out for themselves and you're gonna be the last in and the first out because of the integrity of your position. It's going to be threatening to people who are just fighting for their survival and to stay on. People aren't in a place yet where they can entertain the idea of new and different and fairer models and deal structures. He said, so you're gonna have to start on your own and you're gonna have to prove yourself that way. And I think that he was right. I think that if I had gone in guns a blazing, you know, into any record label or other company at that time, you know, and said, hey, guys, we got to do things this way now that people would have been like, get the heck, like, bye, you know, but building relationships and really getting to know people and letting people get to know me and hopefully people realizing that I'm not a threat and that we're all in this together. 
And then also having, you know, some real wins underneath my belt. I think that it gives me credibility in all of the ways that matter. So for Oma Lily Projects, you know, there are a couple of things I really care about. First, I'm a woman of faith. And so like my guiding mission in life is to love others as I love myself and to put love into the world. We don't have enough time to really unpack all of the things that that means for me and how it all adds up to that. But the idea is that I want artists to make the art they want to make. And I want to be able to support that. And I want to make the highest quality art we can possibly make. And so I want to be able to support that as well. I also believe that whenever and wherever possible, it's ideal for an artist to have a significant stake in the ownership of what they're creating. Now, I don't go as far as others to say that all artists should own everything. And the reason for that is because if you are financially backed by another source, as with any other business, then you can't expect to get a bunch of cash and then that person not participate with you. That doesn't make sense. One of the things that I'm trying to correct in the music business is the idea that there is a small number of people who are profiting off of the work of a much larger number of people. You know, the ideas, the insidiousness of platform capitalism then you have to also at the same time have the ability to see that the other way, which is to say that everybody who's participating in the common enterprise should participate in the fruits of that enterprise in some way, shape, or any good, sound business, you negotiate those fruits and you negotiate them fairly. That's why I stopped short of that because I think that some of us have gone too far in the movement for independent music and haven't acknowledged that we're all in this together and that yeah, like you might be the person who's at your desk, you know, writing lyrics in your journal, but there are all of these other people who are part of this process. The film industry has done a much better job at helping people to understand that filmmaking is inherently collaborative and that every film is a small business. The music business, we haven't done as good a job of helping everybody to understand that it's collaborative. Our star system enables artists and sometimes managers, you know, like one of my other critiques is that some young managers can look at the profiles of other managers and think, okay, well, that's what it means to be successful. And so I have to do all of the things and I have to be in all of the places those managers are without really getting underneath that. So like it goes both ways, but we have such a star system in the music business that we don't spend enough time talking about Every single one of these projects is a small business. It's collaborative. And we need to make sure that people are able to participate in the success. So that's another thing that we really focus on at Oma Lily and with the artists whom I'm currently managing is that we really seek to be fair. We don't spend money we don't have. <laughs> we put together detailed budgets for every project ahead of time. And we make sure that every single person is treated fairly in the process. And so, you know, principles of fairness and equity and justice really underlie everything that we do. You know, like when we're making our vision for the year ahead or a three-year plan, and we also add love, fairness, equity, justice, has to underlie what we're doing. You can actually build incredibly successful businesses with great sound fundamentals by adhering to the classic moral virtues. It's the short-termism, the bitterness, the selfishness, but I need to make this much money today or... 
I need to be able to tell everybody that I did this on my ownness of it that undermines building great successful businesses. And so we know that art is collaborative. We know that we're all creators and we try to be respectful of everybody in the process. So with Oma Lily, you know, the hope is to enable each of my managed artists to achieve their potential as artists, their God-given potential and capacity, and to make sure that they're doing so with integrity, that they're making the art that they want to put into the world, and that we are respecting the individuals, the individual and the individuals, in putting bills together, respecting the dignity of people in putting bills together. And for my other projects, you know, whether it's documentary film or there are a handful of TV projects that we have which are in development, there it's about making and putting out great film, great television that is going to inspire people. One of the things I love best when I'm in the theater and also the theatrical production as well, when I'm sitting in the theater is when I have a change of heart because I understand something that I'm seeing in a fictionalized story on a stage or on a large screen. That power is so incredibly important. Music has that power, film and television have that power as well. And so for me, it's about making the great stories and putting out the great, great stories that have the ability to bring people together through our shared common humanity. And in doing so, that have the ability to progress society in the way that enables people to participate fully and to do so with dignity. And so that's what Oma Lily is about. I'm very, very influenced by both my parents, by all of my grandparents, by our faith, our faith tradition. And I really try, and I'm not always perfect about it. I mean, I make mistakes. We all do. But like I make mistakes and I make mistakes that sometimes I find incredibly embarrassing. But I try not to be defined by those mistakes. I try to learn from them and to ask myself the question, okay, well, what caused this to happen? And to take responsibility, but not to take too much responsibility because sometimes some of us take more responsibility than we should. And so by doing good work, by working with great artists, by creating the proper support for them to achieve what they want to achieve and building a sound business around each of the different projects, each of the different artists, for me, that's really like the aspirations to just keep building. Because if we do this right, we have the ability to impact and to affect society and the world that we live in. So that it's not just about making money and it's not just about being close to famous people or the vanity, I like that you said that, the vanity metrics. I've never thought about characterizing it that way. It's not just about the vanity metrics, but it's about what kind of society and world are we building together through our art? So much of it is staying true to yourself and being able to carry those things through with how you're managing business, how you're putting it on artists. But I think you carry this with a lot about how you've led yourself as an executive. And I think we've seen that this past summer as well with the work that you've co-led with the Black Music Action Coalition and truly trying to bring some change and awareness that I think the music industry is long overdue with coming to terms with and doing a better job. From my perspective, it's gotten a ton of press, but I'm curious on your end, how do you feel like the industry has responded and has it been the response that you would have hoped for? So I guess now we're at seven, eight months since many of the uprisings that happened after George Floyd's murder. We're coming very close up on our first anniversary. <laughs> it's going to be here before we know it. You know, it's been an interesting time. I posted on Instagram the other day and I said that, you know, I effectively implied that I was disheartened that 
that people aren't understanding the civil liberties issues associated with what happened in the Capitol on Wednesday, that there's one group of people, they don't believe that the law applies to them. They believe that they are the law and that they are above the law. And then there's another set of laws for the rest of us. And those people would trample on civil liberties, whereas the rest of us in the exercise of our civil liberties in pursuit of human rights and human dignity and civil rights, in pursuit of equal justice and equal protection under the laws, in pursuit of upholding the integrity of the rule of law, are abused, shut out, excluded, shot, killed, injured, and harmed by our society. And so I'm disappointed that, you know, like, yeah, there's some of us who are talking about it, but after George Floyd, and in that month to six weeks after he was killed, there seemed to be a steady drumbeat of people who were very, very focused on these issues when you looked across socials. Now, it's just the activists of us who are talking about it. I haven't seen as many corporates come out Everybody put up their black squares. Corporations put up their black squares. You know, like every artist put up their black squares. People who've been quiet about these issues, you know, like regular friends, they were like, educate ourselves. We've got to learn, study. And I suspect that all of the books that they bought, maybe they read, you know, the first hundred pages of a few of them, and now they're just collecting dust. And so I'm troubled by that because we can't, stop what we're doing. Yesterday was another signal that says to us, the work of humanity is not done yet. Look at who you are. Understand how we got to this point. Change is necessary. We have to self-examine. We have to introspect. We have to have a change of heart. Because if we don't do those things, then we're gonna continue spiraling and the way that we're spiraling. People think that certain behaviors are okay that are just not okay. So on the one hand, I'm really, really happy about the success of BMAC. It's incredible to me that we're eight managers. (laughs) We're not all in the same city. We're in Atlanta, we're in Los Angeles, Chicago. I think there might be a couple of people in New York. We haven't had the opportunity to ever come together for a physical meeting, not once. And We're all really busy, both with our personal responsibilities, which can't be discounted during COVID and the pandemic, but also making sure that we're supporting our businesses and supporting our artists in particular. You know, all of us found that we needed, because we all lost revenue for the first part of the year. And so all of us needed to refigure our businesses. So for us to be able to launch successfully a music advocacy and civil rights organization that has had such a deep effect on so many people and that continues to grow is incredibly important. I think that the work that we've done in the policy advocacy, our voter education initiatives, helping to turn out the votes, creating an opportunity for artists to speak on those issues, incredibly important. I'm so amazed by what we've been able to do and the role that we were able to play in terms of helping to turn out the vote. It's incredible. Some people say, well, it might have happened anyway without BMAC, but keep in mind, you know, that we represent some of the biggest artists in the world. So figuring out a way to bring them together and to encourage people to participate in the civic life of our country, the political life of our country, 
to have those voices, you know, like we are really, really proud of the work that we did there. And we know that we made a difference, like unquestionably and undeniably. In terms of our conversations with all of the different components of the music business, whether it's the labels, publishers, streaming platforms, agencies, live companies, vendors, suppliers, all of the different aspects of our music business, you know, we have a tremendous amount of support for what we want to do. And there's more that's needed. You may be aware that BMAC is involved in an independent study to really analyze the music business, any history of racism, how we got to today, you know, what informed deal structures, what's informed the way we've seen royalties and the payment of royalties to artists, executive issues, pay parity between executives, promotion, advancement, and retention of non-white executives and women executives, all of these different issues. So this independent study that we're working on, I think it's critically important because hopefully from that, we're going to be able to get the data that we need so that we can make the most appropriate recommendations. I think one of the things that's really important for people to recognize about BMAC and about our work is that it's not just that we're a new organization, it's that it took 400 years for us to get to this point. And so we're not going to be able to unwind and fix and reform and change everything all at once. We are pulling together a multitude of different voices. We want to make sure that everybody is being heard. But we also want to make sure that we're being respectful of people who we see as our partners who are working really hard to create changes from the inside. You know, like we're not trying to create a parallel system or a parallel industry or anything along those lines. We're trying to make all of this work better for everybody. And so I think that we do have a lot more work to do. I am excited for the work that's ahead of us. I'm hopeful. Just before Christmas, BMG announcing their preliminary findings of their review of their contracts and the admission that there was a clear pattern of discrimination at several of the labels they acquired and their commitment to reforming practices I love the executives. I, you know, I love the CEO of BMG. And I'll tell you why. Because they are coming to us and they're asking us, how do we change this? What do we do? What are your ideas? What are your recommendations? They want us to be at the table with them so that we can get this right for everybody. And some of the other corporates have been the same way as well. I, you know, I'm not at liberty to say you know, which of those labels are. And you know, for now, at least, I'd rather not. But we're continuing to have all of these conversations. Everybody knows that there are changes that need to be made. And I believe that people are well-intentioned in that regard. My fear and my concern is that we get distracted. This isn't just a music industry thing or entertainment industry thing. This is, I think, a kind of distinctly American thing that affects a lot of our relationships, which is that we sometimes can't stand the pain of what's happened or acknowledge our complicity with what's happened. And we just want to move past it. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Congrats on the money you've raised so far and everything you've done up to this point. I think that we need to see more of it. I'm sure that it's tough when you want things to probably progress even further. But like you said, it's the patience and you understanding that this is a long game. So much of this is overdue, which I'm sure can make it frustrating. But thank you again for doing that work. Before we let you go, for the people that want to follow along with the work that you're doing, whether it's through BMAC or with Oma Lily, where can they find you to follow along? 
So my handles for Twitter and Instagram is Batnib, B-A-T-N-I-B. Be like boy, A-T-N-I-B. It's been to be backwards. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.